Back in the day, Earth's atmosphere was very different than the contemporary Earth atmosphere. The air it contained was made up of primarily nitrogen and some water vapor and some ammonia. There was some methane. And then after a period of tectonic activity, some volcanoes erupting, there was some carbon dioxide as well. But what it all added up to was something that would be poisonous to just about everything that lives on modern Earth here today. That all changed somewhere between two or three billion years ago. A kind of weird mutant bacteria developed, and there was a lot of bacteria on the planet at this point, and some of it was on dry land, but a lot of it was in the oceans. The, the oceans were teeming with all kinds of early life. And one of these ocean-dwelling bacteria it mutated, it evolved, and became like a very strange, monstrous version of all its kin. This bacteria is what we now call cyanobacteria, or blue-green algae. This was the first bacteria, the first organism of any kind that we know of, that photosynthesized. That is, it took photons emitted by the sun and converted them into energy, and released oxygen as a byproduct, as a waste product of that process. And at the time, two and a half to three and a half billion years ago, there was oxygen, but it was primarily stockpiled in other materials. It was either bonded with hydrogen to create water, water vapor and water in the ocean, or it was bonded with iron to create minerals that were in the ocean and on land. And so for a while, this dissolved iron that was in the ocean was able to absorb a whole lot of this waste product, this oxygen, that was being developed by this mutant creature that was kind of starting to take over because it was converting this abundant resource into energy, and as a result, was able to reproduce madly at a crazy pace. But eventually, the cyanobacteria began to produce too much of this byproduct, and the iron that was in the ocean that was absorbing this waste product was filled up. It was to capacity, and so the water became super saturated with oxygen and started to release it into the atmosphere. Many millions of years later, the atmosphere had sufficient amount of oxygen in it so that other mutants, other species that were able to survive in a oxygen-rich environment relative to what it was. There was, still wasn't a lot of oxygen. But those who were able to survive and tolerate that level of oxygen were able to survive and reproduce, whereas their competitors died off. To most of the species living at this time, the oxygen was kind of the same as like ammonia. You maybe could tolerate inhaling a little bit of it, but if you get too much in your system, it, it's just toxic. It's poisonous to you. And so a great number of the species that existed then started to die off. And then slowly but surely, the oxygen breathers began to take over. And the oxygen in the atmosphere increased slowly but surely. And those who survived and did not die off and survived to reproduce were the ones that could tolerate more and more and more oxygen. 
until we get where we are today, where we breezed through the eukaryote stage and then into multicellular life. And from there, we developed into plants and animals of all kinds, chimpanzees and lizards and birds and humans. Everything alive today is the result, the consequence of this process. They are things that passed through this filter. These crazy mutants that survived are our common ancestors. This event is often referred to as the Great Oxygenation Event, or in some cases, the Oxygen Holocaust, because it's one of the biggest die-offs in the history of the planet that we know of. Essentially, everything died except for these cyanobacteria and the things that could breathe the oxygen that they produced. And I'm sure that you can imagine for anything that lived on the planet at this point, they, they didn't have brains, they weren't sophisticated or complex enough to have thinking mechanisms that would have allowed them to think in this way. But you have to think that if there was any type of instinctual trigger or something going on there, particularly for the species that were far inland and hadn't seen the increased development and overpopulation, really, of the cyanobacteria, to them what was happening is that all of their friends and family were dying off. Everybody that they knew was dying off. Everybody was dying for no discernible reason. There wasn't any reason that they could put their finger on because to them nothing had changed. This was something that was happening all over the planet, but most of the planet would not have been able to detect what was occurring or why this change was occurring or even what it was specifically that was killing them. There were things that were not local to them that were decimating everything on the planet and completely changing the planet in a very dramatic and permanent way. We often hear about the changes that humanity is making to the planet. Well, we were not the first to do that. We were not the first to generate a new epoch by dramatically shifting the sedimentary layer of the planet and changing the composition of the atmosphere. Cyanobacteria got there first, and they did it in a dramatic fashion, killing off essentially 99.999% of what existed on the planet at that point in time. And that's what I want to talk about today. The far-reaching, and in some cases, globe-encompassing consequences of actions that are happening that we may or may not actually be aware of, but which can impact us nonetheless, whether or not we can see what is causing these shifts to occur, and whether or not we believe that these changes are happening around us. I want to talk about big picture issues that are truly difficult for us to grok because they are so massive in scale that we may not see them or perceive them, even if we're looking directly at them. And in some cases, they're so unbelievably large that there's maybe nothing that we could do about them, or at least we might think that there's nothing that we can do about them, even if we did acknowledge them and understand them. I want to talk about the connected world and all of the interconnected organisms on it and how colossal that system can be when we finally do decide to take a look at it. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. This episode of Let's Know Things was brought to you by Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, LKT for Let's Know Things, you can get a free month trial of Audible 
and a free audiobook of your choice. Stay tuned till the end of the episode, and I will give a book recommendation, an example of a book that you might choose to use that free credit on. This episode is also brought to you by HostGator. Go to HostGator.com LKT, and you will get a substantial discount on all of HostGator's wonderful hosting options. HostGator.com LKT. Thank you so much for your support. Now let's get back to the show. The article I want to unspool today comes from Bloomberg, and the title is Blame Global Warming for Your Bad Attitude, and the subtitle, Climate Change is Making Us Angry, It May Also Cause More Assaults, Murders, and Even Poor Math Grades for Your Kids. That is quite the subtitle. That's quite the title title as well. When we look at these larger issues, something like global warming or global climate change, whatever you want to call it, very often we use them as bogeymen for everything. But just as often as we use them as the bogeyman on which we can blame all of society's problems, our economic issues and everything else, there's also things that we tend to ignore or not give proper credence to because the coverage of them can seem so breathless or biased or otherwise unappealing. It can be sometimes difficult to take them seriously, and as a result, we don't take very serious things very seriously, or at least not as seriously as is quite possibly warranted. But the idea of a big picture being difficult to grok is what I really want to talk about today. When it is the case that in order to understand what's going on around you, you have to take a massive step, or, or maybe even two or three steps back, to see the bigger picture, you will often find that the majority of people will not take those steps for multiple different reasons. In some cases, they can't. In other cases, they're not aware they're supposed to. In other cases, they don't trust you. They don't think that the steps are necessary, or they don't think that there's going to be anything to see. Or in other cases, maybe they think it's all a trick so that they'll take their eyes off of something that's truly important. And this, unfortunately, riddles the issue of big picture issues with a great deal of skepticism and faith and uneducated opinions in a lot of cases. And all of them kind of meld together into kind of a toxic pool of disinformation that most people don't even want to wade into. And that, I think, is really unfortunate because I think understanding a lot of these bigger picture issues whether or not you actually agree with the conclusion that people draw about them, whether or not you believe that human activity is influencing global climate change and and that type of deal, things that have been politicized, understanding how all of these things are connected can really help people understand what is happening and why and what will happen next in a lot of cases on a local level. One fairly famous example of this is the authorship of the book Frankenstein by the author Mary Shelley. There was a volcano that erupted in the year 1815. The volcano was Mount Tambora, and this is a volcano located in the Dutch East Indies, which is modern-day Indonesia. Mary Shelley, she was on vacation in Lake Geneva in Switzerland, so a good ways across the planet. And this eruption happened in 1815. She was on Lake Geneva in 1816, 
and the year 1816 is known by many as the year without a summer. And it earned that title because the average temperature in the Northern Hemisphere was 0.4 to 0.7 degrees Celsius. That's 0.7 to 1.3 degrees Fahrenheit, lower than average. So not a substantial, like those are not huge numbers, but they are substantial enough to, to make a change that was incredibly notable on multiple levels. And it was notable enough that Mary Shelley, hanging out there in Lake Geneva, noticed the difference. And she and her artist friends were so influenced by the constant rain and the darkness and the chilliness and all of the things that were happening around them as the result of this very moderate shift in temperature that they decided to have a contest and see who could write the most appropriate piece of work. So there was her book and there was a lot of poetry and other fiction written as well. Now, Mary Shelley and her friends were not the only people to notice this change. This year without a summer was incredibly notable across the entire Northern Hemisphere. And it was part of the so-called Little Ice Age, which was essentially a, a moderate cooling that happened from the 16th to the 19th century. But in part, it earned this title because it came immediately after the so-called medieval warm period. And so as a result, it seemed substantially cooler on average, but in reality, it was substantially cooler than a warm period that had been going on for a few hundred years. So it's important to note that the Little Ice Age and the Year Without a Summer and the Medieval Warm Period are all titles that were applied after the fact, though there is more evidence that the Year Without a Summer was a title that was applied fairly immediately after 1816, whereas the Little Ice Age and the Medieval Warm Period are titles that came much later. These are brackets that we applied after the fact. And so people who were in the midst of it would not have necessarily noted a difference because these were things that creeped up on them slowly but surely. But they still had a fairly substantial impact. I mean, this situation, the year without a summer, though it was only one year of lower temperatures, it's, it's really worth discussing for a few different reasons. First, that a volcano on the other side of the world could influence a foreign country that dramatically, could influence an entirely different hemisphere that dramatically is incredible. And it's fairly hard to imagine, really, because most of us are accustomed to thinking on the local level. So thinking on a scale that large is a little bit difficult and unfamiliar. Second, that we have literary and artistic evidence of this, that we have people reflecting on it in real time and giving their opinion and feedback on it and expressing their concerns and their fears about it, talking about their, their concerns that this might be the new normal. That helps us tell the story of how remarkable this must have been and felt to actually be there in the moment. And so it's, it's somewhat remarkable this, this year without a summer in that regard. But third, the Little Ice Age and the Medieval Warm Period are both distinctions that are worth discussing as well. These are periods that, although they're somewhat hard to define, we do not have exact dates for the beginning and the end, for example, and there's some disagreement about that by historians because we don't have accurate recorded history during the centuries in question. But these are two periods that we have some evidence that they occurred, <laughs> and we definitely have a lot of 
recorded evidence of the potential consequences that happened as a result of these average shifts up and down in temperature. And then we have a whole lot of theories about what might have caused them. Things like geothermal activity shifts and changes in ocean circulation or even increased solar activity. Now think about that for a second. The European Middle Ages were a time of immense intellectual activity, vastly increased intellectual activity, and increased uprise and warfare as well. A lot of this is the consequence of more and more nutritious, more nourishing food that was available. Having increased temperatures, even just a little bit, even a fraction of a degree, may have allowed for longer and more reliable harvest seasons. And the increased trade of produce and seeds, particularly between horizontally aligned cultures, what I mean by that is when the continents are horizontally aligned, the cultures there are more likely to be able to trade foodstuffs in particular with each other, but also technologies and such, because they will have similar climates, or more likely to have similar climates. So a great deal more cultural and societal evolution and technological and germ, actually, evolution occurs as a result of this shared climate. And so they had perhaps greater harvests, but they also had an increase in trade and the exchange of things like seeds and culture. Perhaps there was even a decrease in things like diseases and other conditions that tended to plague these regions during the chillier times on record. So let's imagine that a small shift in, say, solar activity leads to increased overall warmth on parts of the planet. And those parts of the planet produce a bit more food, and that food leads to increased and healthier populations, and those larger, healthier groups of people build more things and can support larger armies and increased specialization and develop new technologies and new philosophies as a result of that. And they're able then to create some of the most famous art the world's ever known and evolve numerous different crafts that until that point had been kind of side hobbies for the culture. And they're able to set sail out into the world and, let's be honest, rape and pillage and conquer. And as a result, they're able to establish a worldwide trade network that kind of sets the tone for the world that we live in today in terms of how empires operate, in terms of how trade operates, in terms of how interactions between different cultures operate, in terms of how certain legal systems and commercial entities, how those operate. A lot of the groundwork for modern society, including a lot of the borders and boundaries that we still respect today, those were all laid during this period. The Dutch East Indies, where the volcano erupted, possibly resulting in the year without a summer, across the Northern Hemisphere, was a country that was founded by a European trading company. They would have heard this volcano erupt hundreds of miles away, and there were tsunamis on neighboring islands. These reports would have reached Europe because of that trading network that was being built and maintained worldwide. But even with that network in place, even with that means of communication, even with those eyes on the ground where this volcano happened, they didn't have any idea what the larger consequences of it would be. They had no reason at the time to think that a volcano erupting here would lead to traumatic climate change over here on the other side of the planet. 
there were famines across Europe. There was a major typhus epidemic that killed 100,000 people in Ireland. Food prices skyrocketed due in large part to failed crops in New England, where only 25% of the corn was left edible. China also experienced famine due to rice crops that were killed by the unusually cold climate that year. And even Taiwan, which is typically tropical, had snowfall on some parts of the island. There was a great deal of art created during this time period, the time period after Mount Tambora erupted. And some of it was inspired by the remarkable sunsets that were seen around the world that was caused by the ash in the atmosphere that refracted the light differently. And so they saw sunsets that contained colors they had never experienced before. And then there was also the haunting cold and darkness and incessant rainfall that inspired art like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Due to a shortage of oats in the Northern Hemisphere, the German inventor Karl Dreis developed an invention called the Velocipede, which, in addition to being just a kick-ass name, was also the first commercially successful human-powered horse alternative transportation device which is to say it was the precursor of the bicycle. This was developed and pushed forward because he saw the opportunity. Fewer oats meant it was more difficult to maintain horses. Everything was becoming much more expensive as a result, and they didn't make sense on a cost analysis level anymore to use for individual transportation. And so he developed the ancestor of the bicycle. It's also thought that the failure of crops in the northeastern part of North America led to the initial settling of the U.S. heartland, the Midwest, but also the western half of New York. So a lot of people left the traditional farming areas, the areas that had already been carved out and where crops had been planted and people had settled, they up and moved because the crops were not coming through for them that year. And Vermont, in particular, really suffered as a result of the climate shift that occurred in 1816. They lost 12 to 15,000 people, some to death, but mostly to emigration. And that's the equivalent of seven years of population growth at the time. Among those people who emigrated to try to find a better living situation, because they didn't know if this was the new normal or not, was a man named Joseph Smith who, among other things, was the eventual founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church. It's worth noting that this volcanic eruption, though one of the largest in recorded history, was not the only or the largest of its kind. The Toba Catastrophe was the name of an eruption that also took place in current-day Indonesia, so thanks, Indonesia that had an explosive force 100 times the size of the Tambora eruption that caused the year without a summer. Now, thankfully, this was something like 75,000 years ago, and as such, it didn't impact human society and civilization quite so much, but it did impact the planet quite dramatically, and potentially impacted the human species fairly substantially as well. It is suspected that this eruption shifted the globe toward a glacial period much faster than it would have otherwise. And so the, the climate does go through regular ebbs and flows in terms of temperature. 
but it suspected that although the global climate was shifting toward a glacial period, it still had a few hundred years to go. And the eruption put a lot of particulates into the atmosphere, which then blocked more sunlight from coming in through the atmosphere and basically pushed us into this glacial period a few hundred years before we should have. This race toward a glacial period dramatically reduced, or is thought to have dramatically reduced, the amount of life across the planet in a very short period of time. And that may have applied to humans as well. The more we learn about our genes, the more we learn about how related we all are to each other. At some point, between 50 and 100,000 years ago, our species, Homo sapiens, hit a genetic bottleneck. A period in which the human population, which was located, it was scattered all across the planet. We had settled every single piece of land in all different types of climates that we could find, our ancestors did. But that number was reduced somewhere between 50 and 100,000 years ago to around 3,000 to 10,000 people. And so the entire human population across the entire planet was reduced to that number. All hominids on the planet, all humans and all kind of humans, the Denisovans and the Neanderthals, all of the surviving human-ish species essentially died off. And as far as we know, all of the others completely died off. But the Homo sapien group that we descend from was reduced down to 3,000 to 10,000 people. And so we have archaeological evidence that we were all over the place for a time, and then we were beaten with the climate hammer, it looks like, and everybody died off except for a very small group. The entire population of the human race was essentially the population of a modern-day small town, which reduced the amount of genetic stock that we had available. And that is why it's called a genetic bottleneck. For a great long while, we had immense genetic diversity. But this event, whatever it was, kind of ruined our opportunity to benefit from that genetic diversity. Now, we don't know for absolute certain that this Toba catastrophe, which killed off so many different things, was the thing that caused that genetic bottleneck for us. It could just be coincidence. That does happen. That something else occurred that knocked us down to size at this time period. But the coincidence would be quite immense. Still possible, but we know that this eruption happened about 75,000 years ago, and our genetic bottleneck occurred between 50 and 100,000 years ago. And so the Toba catastrophe is right in the center of that time period. There is a decent chance that either the catastrophe itself, or more likely the secondary and tertiary consequences of that catastrophe, of this massive volcanic eruption, the very sudden climate shift, was what killed off the vast majority of humans on the planet. And I can't help but wonder, how much more diverse would we be if this hadn't happened? How much more genetic variety would we have across the human species if we continued to intermingle and presumably breed with these other Homo sapien-like species or other wings of the Homo sapien family, how much more diversity would we have? How much more variety in our shape, size, coloration, and everything else would we have? Would we have eventually found enough commonalities to become the interconnected globe-spanning civilization that we are if there were more divisions and differences between us? 
Or would the conflicts between the Neanderthals and the Denisovans and the Homo sapiens and all the different variations therein have kept us from ever uniting and breeding and inventing and settling and conquering the way that we did? The ability to see the big picture and to act upon what we learn from it and to try and understand these intermingling, intertwined forces the best that we can is one of the main challenges that we face as a global, tech-enabled species. Globalization, flawed as it is in so many different ways, and at times harmful to established traditions and regulations and local infrastructure as it can be, is one attempt to make this happen, to ensure that when a volcano erupts on the other side of the planet, we are able to know about it and to understand the consequences of this, what it will mean for the people on the ground in Sedalia, Missouri, and to essentially assure that we're able to respond to those impending threats with the proper resources and within the proper time frame. We are currently far from that ideal, of course. Part of the reason for this is the conflict between what we can see with our own eyes and in our own communities and the actions taken and needs felt by the larger mesh of those smaller communities, of of which those tiny communities are just one small part. There are a lot of positive things to be said about focusing on doing good at the local level. But it's also impossible to ignore the larger picture, at least for very long. It's well and good to say that we're going to protect our own, and that means putting up walls and defending our way of life. But none of those efforts will do anything to protect the planet from the rippling global effects of an asteroid strike. None of those us-first-them-never efforts will protect one's community from the devastation that can, and often has in the past, occurred as the seemingly minuscule temperature shifts that result from a volcanic eruption on the other side of the world take hold. But we're really bad at educating ourselves about these larger issues. We're bad at helping people understand them, and even proving, in some cases, that they're real. Yes, we have generations of data and examples of butterflies flapping their wings on one side of the planet, which causes a tsunami a thousand miles away, but when large chunks of the population don't even believe in the scientific process, or believe that wanting something really badly will magically make it happen for them, or that heavily tested and well-regulated vaccines are in any way linked to autism, we've got a problem that goes beyond simply disseminating information so that people have access to it. We have a problem with putting information into the proper context. This is actually a big part of why I wanted to start this podcast in the first place. The bite-sized media world we live in today discourages us to dig deeper into things. It encourages us to share a lot and very quickly and to consume in the same way. But the result is that we graze liberally on the things that are pointed out to us. So a great number of things that we graze on, that we read the headlines and a poll quote and look at the photo, but then never go beyond that. And so we end up lacking a great deal of depth of most of the things that we think we know about. The information is there in a lot of cases, but the ways that we communicate this information and the importance of it, that is lacking. 
even as we do suffer some of the consequences of this, of this lack of information that people have, that people actually consume, we are continuously encouraged to communicate more and more concisely. And there are a lot of benefits to this as a means of communication. I am in no way a doomsayer about the direction that communication is going. I am actually very optimistic about it, and I think that these tools that we have are amazing. They are getting more people to interact and communicate than ever before because we have more ways of doing that than ever before. We have more venues and platforms that are open to more voices that are now being heard than ever before. But because we're still in the early days of a lot of these technologies and platforms and mechanisms and social norms that revolve around this type of very bite-sized communication, it's also nearly impossible to hold someone's attention long enough to communicate something bigger, to expound upon big ideas, and to explore context, to explore the bigger idea in which these smaller ideas fit. I mean, that said, this isn't new. Arguably, even long-form communication of the traditional sort, like books, have the same problem, though at a different scale. No one, for example, wants to read a business book that goes off on tangents about philosophy. But business is informed by philosophy. Business is something that operates within an economy, and that economy was built upon certain moral principles, and moral principles are an aspect of philosophy. And so to really understand business, you have to get into philosophy. But that would be the rambliest book ever to stretch that far off into context. And so this is an issue that goes way beyond Twitter and Instagram, but the newer versions of these communication technologies just expound the problems in a bunch of different ways, while very fortunately adding some benefits. Something that we haven't really solved yet is the issue of information silos. And information silos are very difficult to rupture or connect because we tend to focus on the very few things that we tend to think are important, the very few things that we've decided to specialize in, the very few things that we've decided are our problem. And one example of this is that we tend to focus on our neighborhoods, and then we can't seem to understand why our federal taxes fluctuate and why the climate shifts, which impacts our local crops and economy. It makes perfect sense to focus on the skills and trades that we want to do for a living, and it makes perfect sense to focus on the neighborhood in which we live and the people in it. But if we do that to the exclusion of everything else, then we don't truly understand our trade, and we do not truly understand the area that we live in and the potential opportunities and threats therein. It really does make perfect sense for us to operate this way, to focus in this way, we can only hold so much information in our brain at any one time. So many concerns. We, we cannot be concerned and worried about everything. We cannot keep that many balls in the air. And for most of us, a lot of our attention is captured by day-to-day -day concerns. Work and family and not dying and deciding what to eat for lunch and whether to swing by the gym on the way home from work and whether the person we like likes us or not. This is all important stuff, and it's no wonder that once we've worked through all of these things, we have very little energy left for the seemingly inconsequential issues that, that seem so vast, so big, so beyond our scope and scale that it's not worth the time or energy to concern ourselves with it. 
But what happens if we can begin to understand these connections? If we spend more time tracing them backwards in an attempt to trace effect back to the cause? Might we be able to break the bigger issues apart and sprinkle them into our daily diet of things that we care about? Might we shrink them down to size so that they don't seem so massive that we needn't worry about them? I would argue that these same micro-communication tools that are failing so epically to tell the whole story are succeeding in many other ways. They are making connections easier and faster so that they occupy less of our mental bandwidth each day. But they're also exposing us to more and more often. More of our downtime is mentally active, and that strikes me as an opportunity to weaponize, for lack of a better term, these moments, to sprinkle breadcrumbs using these apps and networks and platforms to lead people to things that they might not have thought to think about otherwise, to give them the information that they need about these bigger things in the same way you might slowly but surely provide somebody ingredients that they'll need to cook a massive meal at some point. Unfortunately, at the moment, people don't always even believe that these things exist, because these issues seem too big. Or if they do know that they exist, they might know that they exist in the same way that they know the planet exists. Okay, cool, it's big, it's there, I believe in it, so what? That knowledge doesn't impact my day-to-day. But, of course, that response is the consequence of how we perceive these larger patterns and forces. It's not the reality of them. Even if we fail to understand all the components of what goes into the bigger picture, which is something that's arguably impossible in a lot of cases at this point in history and with this level of technology, but being aware of the bigger picture seems to be a decent way for us to at least check ourselves when assessing the tens of thousands of news items and facts and data and opinions and everything else that we are exposed to every single day. And I think, frankly, that whether or not you believe that global climate change, for example, has anything to do with human activity, I think what's more important than accepting the exact mechanism behind a change is accepting that these great big systems exist and that these are ecosystems that are just as fragile and just as powerful and interconnected as any ecosystem. And so when you pluck on one string, then all of the other strings vibrate to greater and lesser degrees. Accepting that these types of systems exist and being able to conceive of the fact that they do exist allows you then to better do the math day-to-day when you are operating on a local level, on your interpersonal issues and on what you're having for lunch. All of the smaller decisions then become informed by an awareness of the bigger picture, even if you are not actively thinking about that bigger picture with every single thing that you do. Would Frankenstein have been written had it not been for the eruption of that volcano in Indonesia? Would the velocipede have been invented, and as a result, the bicycle had been invented, if not for that volcanic eruption? Would Mormonism have ever been founded? Would it have become a thing? Had that food shortage not occurred in the Northern Hemisphere as a result of that volcano? There's no way to know until we can figure out a way to check out alternative timelines. There's no way to know what would have happened had that volcano not erupted or had it erupted in a different way 
with a different magnitude at a different time. Some of these things no doubt would have happened regardless, perhaps in a slightly different way. The paintings of the sunsets no doubt would have looked different because you wouldn't have had all those colors. But perhaps Frankenstein still would have been written. But maybe not. And that, to me, is the biggest point of recognizing these larger issues. Because in a lot of cases, there is nothing that any of us as an individual can do to dramatically influence, say, global climate change. But understanding those connections, understanding that this one thing on one side of the planet can have primary and secondary and tertiary and so on repercussions that can reverberate all the way across the planet and have an impact somewhere else, that your actions can have an impact on somebody that you'll never meet. That that thing you're reading about in the newspaper, in the international section, that seems like just an interesting thing to talk about at lunch with your friends and coworkers, not something that's relevant at all to you, that it in fact is relevant, or it could be, in a multitude of different ways. Those vibrations could spread from there all the way to you, for better or for worse. And recognizing this ecosystem that we're a part of, and allowing that to be a variable in all the different decisions that we make, in, in how we communicate, in how we act, and how we respond to other people's communications and actions. It's definitely not the same thing as being able to control every consequence of all the things that we do, or to wrangle the massive issues that we're going to have to deal with as a species at some point, and hopefully that we'll be able to. But combined with some of these technologies, with these communication methods, with these networks, the ways that we have to communicate with each other, the awareness of these things, the awareness of ourselves and our actions and everybody else and their actions and all these things happening everywhere on the planet in context, it's a massive step toward that, toward being able to control these things and understand them on a larger scale. To me, that is a step in the right direction. This episode of Let's Know Things is brought to you by Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, you can get a free month of Audible to try out. You can cancel it anytime you like. If you do not enjoy it, it's very easy to do that, but I am pretty sure you will enjoy it. I have been listening to audiobooks like crazy. I listen when I cook, when I go for walks, when I go on road trips. They are really nice companions to have. At any given point, I've actually got a paperback book, an ebook, and an audiobook going because they fill very different roles and purposes in my life. But if you'd like to give it a shot, whether you already enjoy audiobooks or you are as yet unconvinced of their value in your life, audibletrial.com slash LKT, you will get that free trial plus a free audiobook of your choice. And you get to keep that regardless of whether or not you stick with Audible. So that's a pretty good deal. I have a book suggestion that you can use that credit on, or you can read on your Kindle or on your Kobo, or that you can pick up at your local library or independent bookstore. And the book I would like to recommend today is called How Music Works. It is a book by David Byrne of the Talking Heads fame. He's probably the closest thing to like a music philosopher, or at least a music industry philosopher. And this book is just jam-packed with interesting stuff about the industry and its evolution over time. 
and just really, really interesting facts, too, that pull it into context. One example of that, something that kind of blew my mind, one of those things that's so obvious after you hear it, but it's not until you are told about it, that the format of music, the format in which it's delivered to people, has across the ages determined the shape and size and scope and sound of that music. So when music was played live, it used very specific instruments, and song durations were different, and different types of vocals were used, and that varied based on the location in which it was performed. Different types of music evolved in part the way that it did because of the different locations that were available in which to perform it. And music changed as soon as it was etched onto wax and then onto vinyl. And then when it was recorded on magnetic tape to put inside a cassette, and then when it was laser etched onto CDs, at every step along the way, music, in particular pop music, changed dramatically to suit the new medium. The songs changed in length, so that it occupied the right amount of space. Some music was changed so that it would fit better within an album, and the size and length and scope of an album. Different amounts of bass, different types of high notes, all of these things changed based on the medium, the delivery mechanism of this music. Incredibly fascinating to me, and there's just little mind-bending moments like that throughout the book. So I highly recommend How Music Works by David Byrne. If you do not know David Byrne, check out the show notes for this episode, and I will link to some of his epic moments, including his crazy dancing. But you can snag that audiobook or any audiobook of your choice if you use audibletrial.com LKT, but I also just recommend that book in general because it is fantastic. This episode is also brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is the hosting company that I use for all of my online properties, my blog, and my portfolio my website for Let's Know Things, and they are just a fantastic service. The prices are quite reasonable. The customer service is amazing. It's really easy to get set up, and there's a lot of power user stuff there too, if you are into that type of thing. They are offering listeners of Let's Know Things a substantial discount. So if you go to hostgator.com LKT, you will be able to see those discounted prices. So checking out those sponsor links that I gave is one way to support the show. You can also support it directly. If you go to letsnotethings.com, there's a bunch of different links, ways that you can contribute monetarily if you care to. A dollar an episode would be amazing. Uh, You can give more if you like, but a a dollar an episode would be great. That would be so very much appreciated. Another great way to do that, to support the show, is to share it with your friends, share it on social media, and leaving reviews up on iTunes helps quite a bit too. Clicking and leaving some stars and a quick review, that helps bring more people in, and I very much appreciate it. Also at letsknowthings.com, you can sign up for the LKT newsletter, which comes out every Monday. It has a collection of curated links to interesting things that you might find worth your time. And you also find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. You can follow Let's Know Things at Let's Know Things on Facebook and Instagram. You can find me personally on Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter and everywhere else at Colin is my name. You can find out more about me and my work, including my books at Colin.io. My blog is ExileLifestyle.com. And I have a YouTube show called Consider This that you might enjoy. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.